Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we are joined by guests from the financial advice space to discuss some of the hot topics in the industry at the time. Financial advice has come a long way over the years, more so after technology has evolved the way that we all live. The ability to have everything at the click of a button means client expectations from financial advisors and firms will be fast moving. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the Amazonification of the client experience and where we're at in the industry at the moment. I'm Sonia Rach, Senior Reporter at FT Advisor, and joining me today are Russell Andrews, Global Head of Advice Solutions for SEI Asset Management, and Heather Hopkins, Managing Director and Founder of NextWealth. So I'll get straight into it. I guess, given how quickly the world is changing and kind of, you know, the introduction of um, technology and just the way that we, you know, live that has completely changed, obviously, post-pandemic, how, I guess, do you think uh, client expectations have evolved? So so maybe I'll start with you, um, Russell, first and then and then see what Heather thinks. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think... It- Expectations have changed, and they've changed quite dramatically over the last few years. Um, you know, that's a cultural thing, a societal thing. You know, and it's really been predicated by a, a lot of what we do in our day-to-day lives and how that's evolved. You know, technology has been a big part of that, but I think principally the big shift that that we've seen is how the experience is almost valued more so now than the transactional value of an outcome. Right now, people are looking for real kind of personalization in how they engage with things. They're looking to be met where they are. You know, they're looking to have choices around engagement. You know, and like like you say, with you know people like Amazon or you know the Netflixes of this world, this is now just becoming very much table stakes for how people want to engage in all walks of life. Yeah, no, I definitely agree, and I think it is kind of this. It's sort of how easy things have become that you almost think you know for me personally when I order something on Amazon and I know that it's arriving the next day I you know expect that now so if I'm ordering from somewhere else and and it's sort of you know five days delivery I'm like oh that's that's quite a while I have to wait so I think it's this kind of personalization of of getting things at the click of a button I mean I'm, I'm not sure what do you think Heather is do you kind of agree what what a sort of clients' expectations in the world of financial advice and, and how has that changed? I definitely think client expectations have changed, um, and but I, I'm not sure that anybody expects financial planning to to become like Amazon and that, that the immediacy of Amazon, and nor would I think most financial planners want to work with clients who have that expectation. And, and I think it's really important to remember that, that that financial planning is essentially a relationship business. It's about humans. And um, and the reason that that clients value that relationship so much with their financial planner is because of the trust that they've established with them. I and mean, we all trust Amazon to deliver our package when they say they're going to deliver. We, you know, we have that, we have that that expectation is met. But um, but that's a, that's fundamentally different from that sense of financial security that you get from that individual, and um, and so I think it's important for financial planners not to get too caught up in trying to think about 
you know, how they need to meet customer expectations relative to those sorts of businesses. Because if you really look at what customers are looking for from the relationship with the financial planner, it's an understanding that I'm doing okay, that sense of financial security and well-being that they feel from that relationship. And you can look at all sorts of data, including the financial um, a financial live survey from the FCA, just that people who work with a financial planner um, feel more confident about their finances. Um, they feel a better sense of well-being about their about their finances, and the impacts that knock-on effects that that has across people's lives is is immense. Um, and so, there's huge opportunities to digitize aspects of financial planning, but but we should never lose sight of the fact that that what needs to be digitized isn't necessarily that human to human relationship. Um, it's all the stuff that happens in the background that could be a lot easier. Um, and and so that's where I would focus on thinking about the tech revolution um, and sort of reimagining what we need to have as, as the, the infrastructure sitting behind financial advisors. Yeah, I mean, just coming on that, I think, Heather, I think you're absolutely right. This isn't a question of how do planners and advisors replicate the, the business model of Amazon, right? Because e-commerce is a very different sector to, you know, financial advice. I do think there are some principles that can be, you know, learned from the way in which they've gone about building their, their platform, where really they've put at the heart of their proposition things like convenience, right? Things like transparency, the introduction of a community feeling, the, the ability to deliver insights to help people make good decisions, these are kind of fundamental components that I think can be learned from. And I think using technology to help surface those things is a way which actually goes to help augment the human to human relationship, certainly rather than replace it. Um, so I think it's, it's going to be a case of finding that real blend of how technology can help add value and not necessarily you know, oversimplify what is a fairly complex um, you know, market in reality. Yeah, absolutely. That word augment, spot on. Absolutely agree. Yeah, so that kind of brings me on to um, one of my kind of other questions, which is um, understanding, I guess, how this will all impact when uh, a, a kind of different age demographic. So so obviously the traditional client who advisors are currently dealing with or currently kind of have um, will be a lot different to perhaps those that are kind of coming into to wealth at the moment or or taking on inheritance or, you know, just joining kind of that that area where they're going to need a financial advisor or a financial planner. So for those kind of clients, what do you think, I guess, um, advisors need to be doing, um, you know, with tech solutions, for example, or kind of simplifying some of these complex areas? What should um, advisors be doing to kind of help with those clients so maybe if, if Russell you want to go first and then sure I think maybe the first thing I'll say is I think it's it's too easy to just to say the next generation is going to be completely different right you know that's just not how the world works in reality you know the next generation becomes the current generation in time and will face a number of the same challenges that you know the, the typical advice client faces today I think some of the things though that can help you know, really prepare advice firms for how, you know, the future generations of clients will want to engage is, you know, to maybe start to introduce more entry points for that particular generation using technology to bring them into the conversation, to start to bring them into the, the idea of what, you know, value advisors bring, you know, and technology is a very good way of doing that through 
you know, elements of gamification, the ability to learn and understand more about finances. But but principally what is going to happen at some point is, you know, when that wealth increases, the shift from a Robin Hood style of investing, I suspect, is going to diminish because, you know, invest in your, you know, end of the month surplus income is very different to suddenly having a significant pool of assets that you may have inherited. And I think it's it's ensuring that advisors are in the right place at the right time and able to extend that relationship from beyond what they've been doing, you know, in that maybe earlier phase to then starts to add that more meaningful value. I think the other thing that advice firms should be considering, and I think they are in, in truth, is looking to go ahead and actually employ you know, more from that younger generation, because I think that will help shape the way in which they can bring them into their proposition much, much earlier in a much more engaging and relevant way. I think those are the two things that, that for me will help, you know, manage that transition between current generation and future generation. Yeah. And, and what were your thoughts on that, Heather? So I definitely agree recruiting younger advisors, and that's what we hear from financial advisors who are thinking about how to engage with next generation customers, that that we all like to work with people who we can relate to, and it's easier to relate to somebody who's a little bit more like like us, and that could be by age. But I think um, I think one of the big challenges for financial advisors is that they actually really have control over the proposition that they're offering to their customers, and so you know they can they can adopt the best tech in the world. But if they you know we're working with a client who's got a pension with Clerical Medical or Reassure, um, you know they're going to be spending hours, literally hours, on the phone trying to get a valuation from the firm, um, and and trying to get costs and charges on some you know bond products and legacy pension um and and so so there's definitely things that advisors can do um but you know as an industry we also need to push the the laggards to 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 come up to you know the 19th century maybe in terms of you know the servicing of of accounts and and i think the fca really has a responsibility to um, ensure that those firms are treating customers fairly because um, because the horror stories that we hear from advisors on a daily basis about dealing with providers is horrendous. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of what advisors can do, uh, the last time we looked at it, 35% of advisors still weren't using e-signatures in their business. Um, you know, that's an easy win where you can make the digital, um, you know, can make onboarding a lot more slick. You can have really good records in your firm for your own compliance purposes, uh, modernize that client journey a little bit. Um, if platforms have made huge strides um, from when we looked at it at the beginning of the pandemic until um the a year ago and we're just about to update our work on on e-signatures but there was a 42 percent reduction in the number of paper forms required across the 18 platforms that we looked at um so platforms have done a lot but you know if advisors aren't using e-signatures then the continued investment into digitalization is not going to come because you platforms and other providers aren't going to modernize their processes um, if those are not being used by the financial advisors operating on those platforms. Um, I think another thing to think about is um, is the differences for different types of firms. Um, so we, you know, our view is that smaller financial advice firms, smaller perfectly formed financial advice firms, they're going to take more of an outsourcing approach to their tech. So finding partners that they can work with, it's not realistic that those firms can have a 
tech expertise within their firms to you know figure out how to build um, API integrations between different providers. So you know being really smart about who you're partnering with externally, mid-sized firms. Um, you know, spending more time looking at your workflows and finding tech providers that work um, with those workflows and that work together. And then big firms, of course, will have the resource to think about having their own custody and, um, you know, building a platform that integrates with a, with a, we call it, um, I think the firm, a term that's been used in industries now is tech fin. Um, so a tech first firm rather than a financial services first firm um, to, to build custody integrated into a really good back office system that's built by a tech provider, not a financial services provider to really modernize that infrastructure. So there's, there's definitely things that can be done, but it's really different based on the type of firm you're working in. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is quite bizarre that it kind of took the pandemic for people to even sort of, you know, accelerate to where we are now. And and even then, there's still kind of advisors that are, you know, not using e-signatures. I mean, it just feels like the industry isn't moving as fast as some of the other industries in kind of other spaces where everything is kind of tech savvy and virtual. And we're sort of just slowly making our way there. So it's it's definitely... Um, I, so I think I think you're right to a certain extent, but if you've tried to change your broadband provider and you've had to have an engineer come to your house and you've had to wait, you know, a week to have somebody come out, you might think, yeah. you know, there's more we can do, but it's, you know, it's it's not the worst. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's definitely more we can do. But, 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 but progress has been very good. You know, I think I think the industry has almost surprised itself at how resilient and how, you know, agile it's been through what, what was really a very difficult period of time. Um, I think the point is a good one around how technology, you know, the fintech space and the financial services space. I think over time, those two things are just will become one. Right? Technology will become u- ubiquitous, and there'll be there won't be that same distinction. There, there'll be different models between building in-house and outsourcing, um, which I think is is actually a really interesting debate in itself because, you know, I think the value of financial advice can be benefited by technology but I don't think firms necessarily need to go ahead and start building their own when there are really good technology specialists out there you know that's not necessarily what clients will value explicitly it's that human to human it's that you know that feeling of wellness that that Heather was mentioning so I think um, firms even the bigger firms who are looking at that as a strategy and saying let's figure out how to build our own technology stack potentially should consider the outsource model as well because you know ultimately that they're spending a lot of time and and effort um delivering something that perhaps could be a lot more turnkey and it doesn't detract from from what clients really care about in terms of how they see their advisor um so i think that that we'll see that shift i think through time and i think more and more people will go towards the the outsourcing approach um and you mentioned something else heather as well which was was interesting about having that control over the proposition you know i think that more people you know in the industry are now looking through the value chain and saying well how can we have more control and more integration between all elements of the value chain and perhaps even from a commercial standpoint how can we as a business benefit from that more than just becoming a you know a a customer of you know the partners further down the chain how can we take you know take that control and I think that's that's high in a lot of people's um, kind of agendas at the moment. Certainly, those those firms who are really 
have that enterprise mindset. You know, there are lifestyle firms who, you know, do a really nice job at what they do. But those who are looking to really grow aggressively, those certainly who have got maybe new investors who are looking for a meaningful return on that investment. You know, and now, you know, the focus has sharpened somewhat on how can we control the proposition better? How can we deliver not only a great client experience, but a great advisor experience and look to build business value through participation across more of that value chain? Yeah, and I think that kind of um, is sort of a good kind of starting point or kind of touching on what um, I was going to ask, which was around, you know, the kind of battle for the value chain, essentially. So, you know, some kind of would argue that this battle to capture more of it um, couldn't be kind of bigger right now. And I just wondered kind of how vital would you say um, it is for financial advice firms to sort of provide advice and solutions to kind of capture as much of the client's needs as possible? And and how can firms do this? Um, Heather, do you want to go for that one first? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so the last time we looked at this, uh, based on an estimate of advisors, it's not exact numbers, um, but the total cost to customers was about 185 basis points. Um, the highest share was going to um, the ongoing charge for um, financial advice fees. Um, second was to funds, including transaction charges, um, next portfolio management, and platforms earning the the, the thinnest um, share of the of the pie, um, but there's some really really interesting differences between firms that I think um, probably highlight motivations probably for trying to capture parts of the value chain. Um, so the larger the firm, the higher the fees, um, and in particular where the fees um, uh, climb is in funds. Um, so platform fees come down. Advice fees stay about the same, um, but the fund charges increase. Um, so just a, as an example, um, the advisors in the largest firms, their clients are paying an average of 69 basis points um, for fund management charges, including um, transaction charges, which is 12 basis points more than average. So you think about you know, the regulators focus in the value assessments that are being done by asset managers, looking at, you know, are you using your scale to bring down the costs to customers. Um, and you know, as that as that extends in the consumer duty um, uh, you know, that's coming out in the summer, I think. Um, you know, it's not not definite yet, but it looks like it's gonna be coming out in August. Um, you know, I think there are I think some real questions about um, about whether firms are using um, scale to bring down costs to customers. Now there's an argument that advice isn't a particularly scalable business because the regulatory costs increase in larger firms, um, the ability to you know, oversee what's happening uh, with advisors and different people within the firm, the cost of that increases because, um, because you have you know, disparate people in lots of different offices and so there's more checking that has to happen. You can't just you know, get around a table. Um, so so you know, maybe there's, there's, those are justified increases in cost. Um, but I think that also suggests that you know, maybe people are looking to capture parts of the value chain to capture margin, to be honest. I don't think that's the case with platform. I think that's a different conversation for advice firms looking to have their own platform. That's about operational efficiency and risk within the business. I don't think that's about capturing value um, in terms of, of, you know, basis points in the firm. If that's the motivation, I wish them luck. 
because there's you know there's a lot of people who've gone down that road and it's really hard to make money from platforms you can just look at the you know the profitability of some of the big players out there um, and it's a huge effort um it's it's definitely the right route for some firms um but you know, the firms i talk to say it's going to be one or two bips in three years time after they launch the platform that they might add but it can have a huge impact on operational efficiency and risk management I mean, I'd probably add to that. I think <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right. There is a certain motivation in play um, amongst certainly some. I think the other aspect of it that it shouldn't be overlooked is trying to ensure the the retention of the of the client experience. And I think what we've seen perhaps over more recent years is where advisor firms have maybe turned to to DFMs and to MPS providers, what they're often doing is introducing another relationship into their client experience, which potentially goes some way to diluting their their demonstration of value. And I think there's an element of it where there's certainly there is an economic benefit potential, but I think being able to kind of have that consistency throughout the entirety of the, not only the advice and planning, but the investment implementation being able to contextualize almost from back to front you know that entire client journey i think becomes very appealing for advisors and actually starts to build um, loyalty perhaps entanglement and elements that you know can actually go to to help improve the client overall experience now that can't be at the compromise of cost clearly client clients shouldn't be paying more for that sort of vertical proposition in fact, I agree in that there should be scale benefits in there that, that should make it, um, it you know, much more economically sound for clients. But simply having that consistency is going to be key. You know, it's very, very common that you'll see an advice firm do a really nice job in the planning space and then essentially turn over to an asset manager that has no real integration with that planning conversation. You know, and that disconnect in itself potentially can break the value of, of how that advisor is, is delivering their services. And I think some are looking at that and saying, well, how can we solve that problem? And actually it's less of, a, of, a, of an economic mindset and it is much more client focused. It's much more about you know, bringing together the integration of the value chain rather than pure ownership. And I think some of the transactions we've seen in the market recently, you know, where you know, Aviva and Succession, imagery in Sandringham, these type of deals where the two are remaining somewhat independent, I think that's a good story. But I think actually there's potentially, you know, an opportunity that's being missed there to really put those together and say, how can we build a collective proposition that's really great for clients, not only from a economic standpoint, but from a you know an experience and and in and ultimately an outcome. You know, that's what everybody's still working towards, right? Yeah, I totally agree that um, that ability to control your destiny as a financial advice firm um, is is so important. And I love what you said, Russell, about uh, that you're thinking about the customer experience, not just the shareholder experience for some of these deals. You're absolutely right. And and one should be synonymous with the other because well, being, you know, well, offering great customer experience should be good business, right? Well, I, I always say the biggest risk to an advisor is their clients not achieving their goals. Because if the clients don't achieve their goals, they don't have a good experience. It doesn't matter how, you know, how much margin your business attracts, your client base will diminish through time. 
right? So ensuring that the client always remains at the forefront of everything you do is simply just a healthy way of building a business. Yeah, and I think going back to Amazon, you know, where we started, I think that's principally what they've done. They've looked at what do that, what do our customers want and what's going to keep them coming back and feeling good about their service. And <clears throat> it's interesting, I, I always sort of draw this example when I think about Amazon in that it's also not a one-trick pony. Uh, it doesn't focus squarely on one value driver. And I think that's something that advice firms really, you know, should should be considering as well in their proposition. Like, you know, when you go to Amazon and you want to buy batteries, the typical reason you buy batteries is because they just ran out, right? So convenience and speed is absolutely key. But if you're looking to buy a, something that's maybe a more expensive product, you know, a new lawnmower, you know, you're probably willing to wait for that on the basis that you've read customer reviews, you've got a full understanding of the specification, it meets your needs. And that just means that you're engaging in a very different way. You've got different drivers that give you the experience you're looking for. And when you think about planning and advice, there are circumstances which could be very simple and just need an immediate you know, response and others that need much more time to be taken. And having that kind of dynamism in the proposition is going to be, I think, important to help you know, navigate and even potentially bring in more scalability in the proposition by dealing with things that can be dealt with quickly and easily in a very streamlined and efficient way. Amazon's a really, really interesting example because we think about their retail business, but of course, Amazon Web Services makes up about 15% of revenue and a much larger proportion of their profit than the retail business. And so also thinking about you know the, that that importance of business diversification, and which is another driver for thinking about what are the aspects of the value chain that we're able to capture. Um, so, so the wider Amazon story is a really, really interesting one. I have to agree. On that, the, the 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 value chain you think in in the e-commerce market, there's a the delivery component of that is critical. Right? So, as they expanded their business and they created more of a marketplace versus a you know just a, a retail um, business. They identified that some of the marketplace sellers couldn't fulfill their delivery in the way that reflects Amazon's own value proposition. So they built a delivery logistics business, essentially, that helps those sellers in the marketplace actually deliver those um, goods and services in in a really quick and efficient way, which they wouldn't necessarily be able to do on their own. So again, it's about how do you look at the value chain and the different components in it? to help you continue to deliver your value proposition. Yeah, and that's just a different mindset. So it's less about um, you know, ownership for the sake of it, but having that control to keep, like I say, the experience consistent, irrespective as to whether it's a simple annuiser um, update or whether it's a you know an inheritance of a significant amount of money that requires real um, time and effort and thought, being able to deliver those things you know consistently, but as the client wants them. is is really important for the future. Yeah, I think it's um, some of the kind of topics you touched on there are are really interesting and and kind of trying to understand, um, you know, this this end client experience of, you know, when two companies come together, what are they sort of delivering? And and when they kind of turn to an asset manager that has differing views, you know, this whole approach that I guess Amazon has taken is is somewhat, you know, kind of can resonate in the advice market if you kind of take the key points and so it's quite interesting um and I feel like we've kind of gone 
full circle now going back to to Amazon where we you know started this conversation and and kind of concluding it um I guess just kind of finally if I ask um you know who would you kind of say or who or what even um would you say are kind of financial advice firms competitors in sort of making this value chain sort of complete and and actually moving forward with it so maybe Heather if you want to go first and um then Russell so I think financial advisors that I speak to don't really feel that they're in any particularly tight competition um and um and so I think the you know the important thing is thinking about who are we in competition for attention with and and then you know you're 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 in competition with the world um and but I mean I, I guess the the really good news is that you could often say you know if you're not facing any real competition um do you become complacent and I don't think financial advice firms have become complacent um which is good um I think one of the real risks for businesses is that you often don't know that you are going to be facing a competitor until your business is wiped out. <laughs> and that's the risk, right? And we're kind of seeing Netflix go full circle. I mean, everybody's like, oh, Blockbuster, those, you know, those crazy people who didn't see the opportunity when, you know, it's pretty sensible actually they didn't see the opportunity because there's a lot of case studies that say it's really hard to see that you should completely disrupt your business. And now, you know, Netflix has as you know because they disrupted themselves and went to streaming, um, they have um you know, come full circle to the end where because they don't have access to third party content, the value of their platform has decreased. And so, um, so, you know, it's always important to be innovating um, and, and to be thinking about the future. I think for most financial advice firms, um, you know, listening to their customers, staying focused on what their customers want is the most important thing. I think Russell made this point at the beginning. You don't really need to be looking at, you know, over your shoulder all the time if you just if you just focus on what your customer wants. And what they want is they want a sense of financial security. They want a trusted relationship. They want a modern interface to be able to access their investments as and when they want. And for a lot of them, they want to be able to have some ability to be able to manage their investments themselves. And so thinking about not advised versus D2C, but thinking about, you know, multi-channel approach with the advisor at the heart of that financial relationship with that customer. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, one of the, ironically, one of the saviors, I think, has been regulation. The levels of regulation that that exist in financial services potentially have prevented other disruptors from, you know, maybe making aggressive plays like they have done in other sectors. Um, but that isn't to say that there, you know, the risk doesn't exist. And, and as Heather says, it's often you don't re- recognise it until it's potentially too late. I think there are some, you know, asset managers who are, you know, really pushing quite aggressively um, to move into the the advice space, and that that always, you know, brings competition. Um, you know, we've seen that recently. I think asset managers are going really, you know, that market is bifurcated in in that as pressure mounts on fees and margins, they're either going down the route of product development to try and capture more share, or they're looking at their own part of the value chain and saying, well, how close, you know, can we get closer to the, to the client? Can we own distribution? You know, and as those, those organizations with very deep pockets potentially, you know, bring 
um, those deep pockets into the market, whether that's through you know, marketing efforts, whether that's through you know really pushing and driving the costs down. You know, I think they do present a risk to advisors and you know the likes of the vanguards of this world. You know, everybody talks about vanguard in that context, but you know, I think that does present a risk and and could present a um, a competitive landscape. But again, echoing what I said and what Heather said, you know, if you focus on clients and you continue to demonstrate your value, more often than not, you'll be just fine. Yeah, I, I think I think it seems like uh, you're kind of both on the same page um, with that and kind of understanding where we are. I mean, it was an interesting conversation and I feel like we could go on for hours talking about the world of advice and where it could kind of go with technology and the evolving client. But unfortunately, we have run out of time now. So I just want to thank you both for joining and sharing your views and, and thank you to everyone that was tuning in. Um, join us next week again, where we're joined by guests from the industry to discuss more pressing issues. Bye for now.